Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Authentic Audience Podcast. My name is Krista Ritma, and I am your host. Very excited for you all to meet my guest on today's episode because I can guarantee you have not met him before. I have my father-in-law, Mark Ritma, on the podcast today, and I'm so excited to introduce you to him. He's not on social media. He's definitely on the quieter side, a little bit more reserved, a little more calm, a little bit more cool, pretty much the opposite of me in every way except in business. And I really look up to him in business. He just recently retired this past year and is in that funny transition, figuring out what comes next. And over Christmas, we were having a beautiful conversation. He offers such unique and interesting perspectives. And because we're so different, I think we just think of things in completely different ways. And he was telling the story and I had never thought of my business or my life in this way. And that's what inspired me to have him come on the podcast today because I've been repeating it so much and so many times to different people. I just thought it would be great to have a conversation with him one-on-one. It's also super fun because Clay and I just moved to Santa Cruz this week where he lives with my mother-in-law. So we got to do this episode together one-on-one. And then we went for a bike ride together afterwards, which was so, so fun. And Santa Cruz is turning out to be very, very peaceful. (laughs) I'm really happy we made the decision to move here. So anyway, on today's episode, we talk about this transition after retirement, his identity, sort of the myth that he's lived by for the past 40 some years in business business decisions he's made. He was really high up in Silicon Valley early on. He had interviewed with Steve Jobs at one point and like really in the thick of Silicon Valley in the late 80s and early 90s. And then in the early 2000s made a big decision to move his family to New Zealand. Um, Before that, he lived in Paris. So he's really made some interesting and cool business decisions that I really respect and admire. So on this episode, I also ask him his advice for millennials. I We talk about inauthentic and authentic business moments and how business has or hasn't changed very much over the last 40 years. I think it's really important that we learn from people before us. I think our parents are you know, our first gurus, our first teachers. And it's kind of fun now having a new set of parents to learn from that um, have totally different views and sort of ways of thinking and living than my own parents. So it's been a beautiful journey getting to know Mark as a father-in-law and as a friend and as somebody I look up to. I really enjoyed recording this episode. I learned a lot and I'm sure you will too. As a software engineer and executive in Silicon Valley, Mark Ritma helped three startups grow into global companies. Executive roles have included Director of European Development and Director of Advanced Manufacturing Systems at the ASK Group, Director of Integration Projects at Cisco Systems, and Vice President of Customer Success at PeopleSoft, which is now Oracle. Most recently, Mark was the former CEO of DBVisit, and Mark is my father-in-law. Welcome, Mark. <laughs> Thank you, Krista. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. Are you feeling pressured? No, I don't feel, feel pressured. <laughs> I, I welcome the opportunity to talk to you. Amazing. So usually I start uh, with talking to people about how we met. 
if we know each other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you well, remember how we met? Well, we met through Clay because you yes. married him and that, uh, you know. Do you remember when we met? I can tell you. Ahead. Okay, why don't you do that? We were I in Mariposa. Oh, yes, you came up to Mariposa. We I had came a, up to Mariposa, and a, Mary, um, my mother-in-law, showed me Clay's baby book within like five yeah, minutes of yeah. arriving. Yeah. So we met up there at the ranch, and we have been friends ever since. Yes, we have been friends. Yeah, and now we're family, so that's Now we're fun. family. I like it because I feel like we would have never met. I would have never met the Ritmas. We don't have a ton in common. Well, there are 7 billion people on earth. You just don't <laughs> run into everyone, do you? So it's crazy that strangers become family. Yeah, so, no, it's great. Anyway, here we are. And um, it's funny because we met at the start of my career. We just yes. formed Authentic Audience and sort of right. at the end of your career. Yes. And I feel like we've learned a lot from you starting this business mm -hmm. and you have a very interesting take on business that hmm. um, is why I asked you on the podcast mm -hmm. today because I think um, it just is a lot simpler than people sort of make it out to be. And an example recently is we were thinking of hiring someone and we couldn't get this person on the phone. And you calmly from the other room were like, that's probably what it's going to be like if you hire them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's yes. like obvious, you know, but yes. I think people like to complicate things. And anyway, so you've recently retired. Yes. Yes. In April, April 1st, I officially um, resigned my role as CEO of DB Visit. We had uh, found someone new to take over and that had been planned for a couple of, at least two yeah. years we'd planned that. And I'm still working about five hours uh, a week. Right. So how's retirement going? Well, you know, every day is Saturday. And that's not all that difficult, really. Yeah. You can um, wake up and go, gee, it's Saturday again. Or more likely, you wake up and you say, what day is today? And you don't huh. remember what day it is. So, so far, so good. I think keeping my hand in a little bit has has helped yeah. with the transition when you if you if you study retirement and sort of the things that happen after you've been working for in my case about 45 years pretty much nonstop yeah for 45 years is that you don't necessarily need to jump into something new mm -hmm. so what i've been doing is just going with the flow and uh, the one one of these books they called it a neutral zone and just let the neutral zone go don't worry about what you're going to do don't worry just 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 live and i've really enjoyed just just living. Yeah, and, uh, you seem really good at. Yeah, it. I might stay in the neutral zone for <laughs> for a long time. I may never find anything else. Uh, it's to just really get interesting. With. Like, so I want to get to this story that I want to talk about okay. this whole myth story in a minute. But um, for me, my identity is sort of wrapped up in my business, and I feel like yeah. as someone who worked for forty five years, it was a big part of your identity. And yeah. separating my identity from my business is something I struggle with, and. I don't, I actually don't know the answer to this. Hmm. Would you have called yourself like a workaholic? I feel like you worked a lot. Oh, no, I, I don't think I was no. a workaholic. I, 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 early, early on in my career, I had a, a very difficult time separating and uh, coming home from work yeah. and, and, and getting rid of work. Um, 
so that takes a little practice, but mm-hmm. you do want to do that. You do need a break from work. Right. And I would have trouble taking a week vacation or a two week vacation, but you do need that. You do need to get away. You've got to, because it gives you a nice perspective. And that took a little while and took, took a little effort. It helps to have spouses, dogs, pets, kids, those kids in particular, uh, <laughs> dogs, people you have to be responsible for sort of forces you to, um, you know, you just got to get work out of your mind and go, go, go feed the dog or feed the kids or whatever it is. Yeah. But do you feel like, yeah, I guess I'm, I don't, I wouldn't call you a workaholic, but it just seemed like you, you cared a lot about what you were working on and you're very thorough and always, always working basically. But I guess that's what we do. In well, <laughs> well, I always worked, but I didn't work after work. Right. Now, once you knew me, I was the either the COO or the CEO yeah. of, of this software company in New Zealand, and it was global in scope. So the time zones in New Zealand forced me to work uh, odder hours, shall we say. Mm. And also at that point in time, uh, I had other fewer other responsibilities. So at the time you knew me, I probably worked longer hours in yeah. a way, but not, not necessarily worked. I didn't work more. That's- it was just... Uh, Outer hours of the day. So do you feel like your identity has sort of shifted at all, though, since you're retired? Do you identify as being retired? <laughs> it took me a little while to yeah. identify as being retired, but yes, I do. So when, when people say, what do you do? I say, I'm retired. Now, the mm. first time I said that, I giggled. Yeah. And and then I thought, well, that's not very um, sophisticated at all. <laughs> so so now when I, I just say I, I'm retired, retired period and period and then if they, if they want to dig into it then I do will confess that I'm working uh, four or five hours a week right uh, because I still sort of have to maintain some some administrative work over the US company yeah for, for this software it's company. transition it's a transition we're in a transition I'm working I worked a little bit more in April and May uh, after I first retired than I am now right so speaking of this transition um, on Christmas, we got to hear a really cool, I don't know if, what would we call it, a speech, a lecture? Didn't I call it something? I, I can't know. remember what it was. It was really funny. <laughs> but basically, um, Mary, my mother-in-law, had been priming us for a few months, letting us know that this big speech was going to happen. <laughs> right. she, and um, yes, we yes. were all very looking forward to it. And what I appreciated the most is you you took it seriously. And, you know, we were all kind of rolling our eyes a little bit when she would bring it up. Mm-hmm. And, and you did it. And the reason behind her doing this, I didn't learn until after, was she read in a book the importance of ritual around like transitions. So, and I do think this is really important, especially like when you're transitioning jobs or moving houses, like my friends recently moved, we recently moved and we did this whole sort of ritual to say goodbye to where we were moving. Anyway, so Mary read this book and somewhere in it, it talked about how important it is um, to create ritual during times of transition. And that's where this sort of speech came from. Is that right? Well, not not exactly. I think Mary has always, since I've known her, always believed in ritual. I don't know if she originally, as a teenager, read it in a in a book somewhere. Right. Okay. She that's always been part of it. So every time we've uh, purchased a new house or uh, moved to a new house, there's been a ritual involved with it. 
So that's just always been something. When we were in New Zealand, we had some uh, some of our friends who were Māori come by and do whatever mm, the Māori do when they right. when they have a have a new home. And so that's always been something. Oh, okay. And so when, I was mistaken. For instance, when all of our children, we have three three children. Each time one was born, we had a welcome ceremony, and she added a new uh, uh, ribbon to the flag. And then when each of our uh, children have gotten uh, married, she's added a new uh, ribbon. I have to a the, ribbon. You have a ribbon, for yes, instance. Yes, I do. And there's a bit, uh, obviously, a, a wedding is a ceremony as well. So there's that's just always been something she's encouraged. And um, and I think she's right. You, yeah. Because as you make a transition, it focuses the mind that, oh, something's changing here. And um, so that's, that's where that's it came where from. That's where it came so, from. Thank you. Yeah. So I didn't know where the sort of... Um, persistent Mark is going to make a speech. I didn't really know the why behind it. So now that I do, I think that's very special yes, she, and very she beautiful. She felt it was important to me and to her um, and maybe to everyone in the family that I uh, there would be something that acknowledges I am no longer doing this. I am now doing this or in my case, yeah. not doing much. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you're doing a lot. The backyard looks incredible. In the background, right. Um, but anyway, so you basically, I didn't know what to expect. And um, you're a very good storyteller. I've heard you tell two stories, basically, okay. again, when you had to, which was at Lee's wedding and then at my wedding. And oh, people right. are still talking about. The story you told at my wedding with the right. play and the toolbox and the whole thing. <laughs> and so I was excited because um, I enjoy listening to you tell stories. And this was really interesting. And I have okay. shared it with so many people and is sort of the inspiration behind inviting you on this podcast. So what I might ask is that maybe you could um, share a little bit specifically about this myth story okay. and where that came from and I don't know. I just think it's really interesting for people my age to think about that. And you don't have to share too personally if you don't want to about your own myth, but just sharing this idea of myths and what we tell ourselves and how that sort of becomes us. Well, yes, I guess I had a um, sometime as a teenager, somewhere in there, uh, I just had a vision of the, the type of person I am, sort of my hero, if you will, was someone who who, who traveled the world, uh, solving interesting problems and helping people. I'm not. Uh, I do know where I uh, got it. I got it from from the culture I, I grew up in in the 50s and 60s. Um, very much the cowboy culture. I mean, you couldn't be a, a little boy in the 50s without being enamored of cowboys. They were cowboys were every everywhere. Mm. And uh, cowboys tended to ride the range. On there was a Lone Ranger and uh, and uh, Shane and all these characters who who were um, uh, men. They were always men, and uh, the ones that I was interested in. And they were um, they just uh, traveled about independently, very confident people who um, you know encountered interesting and and complex situations usually involving always involving people um, that they would then help 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 solve that uh, problem and they were usually they were well they were always sort of honorable uh, men and um, and that sort of instilled in me uh, that that's the kind of hero I wanted to be, if you will. Mm. And also, as I mentioned when we spoke before, or when I was telling about the myth, uh, for me then Ernest Hemingway just 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 grabbed me, and I think he grabbed a lot of uh, young young people um, 
uh, it, at least in the 60s when I was, you know, uh, 16, 17 years old and uh, 18 and um, really influenced me. Um, and he traveled to Europe and did interesting things and, and fought in the Spanish Civil War and did, did all these things. And I always had that impression that that was what I was going to do. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. I just was going to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew it was going to be on airplanes and not on horseback, for right. instance. But, you know, and when you have a myth like that, it, you know, you really want to make it real. Because if you don't, you know, if you don't make it real, if you don't actually live it, then it's just a fantasy. Right. And, and I, that's maybe fine, but it, I, I wanted it to be real, I guess. And uh, so I well, did it. Well, you did it. Yeah, I did it. And I, that's what I did. I did travel around the world and I did go sort of help people. You moved your family to Europe at one yes, point? Yes, we moved to, to Paris for a couple of years and we set up uh, a company with, within a company. And uh, we eventually moved to New Zealand for uh, six years uh, doing similar sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and it was all around software. Of course, when I was a, yeah. little, a, a little boy, there was no software. So there was no software industry. And um, you could, I could never have envisioned that. And um, so, yeah, that's, that was my myth it, and I tried to, tried to live it. Yeah. The other part that you shared that I find really fascinating is this sort of anonymous part. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think so many millennials mm-hmm. and the thing that resonated most with me about that story was that part of the myth was the cowboy would sort of go into this town, save the town, and then leave, and, and no everyone would be left wondering, who was that Who guy? was that guy? Yeah. I always really liked that uh, concept of doing, uh, if you will, good deeds, and no one knew who you were, you know? Which is The Lone very... Ranger with a mask. <laughs> I mean, literally, people don't know, who is that guy? Yeah. And boy, he really helped us out. And just that that feeling that people really did appreciate what you did and they really did like you as a, they liked you, yeah. Uh, but they didn't know really who you were or anything about you and you, they might never see you again. I don't know, for some reason that really grabbed me. It's what a great so... way t- for people to like you. Uh, it's just for, for who you were without any prejudice, yeah. I guess. It was just based on who, who you were. And then you did it. And I think what's so interesting to me about this story and this myth that you shared with us that you then ended up living was, and I think, would you call that myth also sort of your why? Like, because now is like sort of the buzzword is, is like your why or why, your why mission you or your purpose. Yeah. And is, yeah. Well, it's a very, in a way, it's a quite a self-centered purpose uh, because when I envisioned this and had this myth, it was all about me, hmm. in a way. Well, right? as most of our myths are. As I, I, I guess they are. I, this was me as, this is how I would feel like a hero. And, and of course, I was helping these other people, so that, that was, those were my good deeds. And as I think I mentioned, the reality of it is, of course, that I um, didn't do any of these things alone. Mm-hmm. You know, none of them were alone. Right. I had a spouse, for one thing. Yeah. And uh, she was a huge partner in everything I, I did in, in life and in, and in in supporting in business. And of course, I worked with lots of other people. Right. So if I was off uh, uh, setting up a company in, in, uh, in France or something, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't just me. Um, uh, I found some people who were, who were French who could really help me right. do that sort of thing. And you worked with um, the people back in the U.S. who sent you over there. And, of course, we were, we were building, in, in this case, we were selling a product. Well, somebody had to build the product. And I didn't build the product alone. Right. So, you know, it's, it's all, the, the vision 
intention of the of the of the Lone Ranger just doing it on their own uh, in reality didn't didn't hold together once you got right. out there because there was so it, it, it's all a team effort. Totally. Well, I mean, I have two questions for that. Okay. I think my first question about the myth is I hadn't really thought of it like that before. And what it did for me is thinking about sort of these myths we tell ourselves is how many times during your career were you sort of thinking about, is this, you know, the, the, I, I it feels very self-aware, this whole like story that you, hmm. you know, realized when you were 16, this is what I want to do. And then it's sort of this myth that you lived by. You know who inspired it. You know it was the cowboy yeah. shows as a kid. You know it was Ernest Hemingway in your right. teens. And I think a lot of people are sort of unaware, um, even though, like, it caused me to really think about, okay, I always wanted to, as a kid, produce, like, produce movies yeah. or, like, be a producer. Yeah. And now what I'm realizing, even through every job I've had from being an executive assistant to working at the marina where I was literally coordinating what boats were coming in and out, how long they were staying, who was buying. Like I've always been producing. I'm constantly right. directing yeah. everybody as you've you been witness yeah. to. I'm just constantly telling everybody what to do all the time and like coordinating, even if it's like a friend's mm -hmm. dinner. Um, so it goes beyond just my career. Like that's who I've become, but I didn't put this really together until I was listening to your story. And my question is, how often did you sort of think about, you know, as you were making these decisions to move to Europe or New Zealand, like how aware were you that this was like a myth you were living out? To be honest, I didn't spend a lot of time yeah. thinking about it. What's happened to a certain extent, and I think this will happen to people in retirement, is about a year ago, um, um, I, I maybe first started to think about, well, as I was as I was ending the career, well, what what did I do, mm. and what what have I done? Mm. And it it actually started. It was it was a year ago in November. We had at DB Visit, which is the company I was running, um, we had it was about thirty five person company, and everyone had once a month we'd have these sessions where people would give up and get up and talk to the rest of the company about what they had done, what they did, their life outside the company. That's cool. Which was really cool. That's and a cool culture. We had sort of worked through, it was, it, we did it every month and we'd been doing it for years and we'd sort of run through a lot of the people. Mm. And I wanted, I was the CEO now and I wanted to make one change. I wanted people to talk about their craft because I wanted people to realize that the job they were doing, they had a craft. They, they, they all had a career. And um, there was a lot, of course, everyone was younger than me and there's a lot of young, young people there. And so uh, we started these sessions called the Craftly Sessions, we called them. And it was where once a month someone would get up and talk about their craft. Since it was my idea uh, and no one volunteered, I decided <laughs> to be the first to do it. And so this is where, and so I had to examine what was my craft. And my, uh. I had always envisioned my craft being sort of doing this, this myth of going about and then being confronted with something completely uh, new, new to to me and to everyone, this complex situation, what what you'd call a blank sheet of paper in the in the business world mm -hmm. back then. Uh, uh, not sure what it's called now, but probably blank sheet of sure, paper. Yeah, and that that I would then just write on this. I would figure it all out and and go away and then do the next thing. Right. And when I got into it, I realized that what I 
my craft really wasn't uh, building new things on a blank sheet of paper. It was really transforming existing things. Mm. And that as I look back in my career, all I, what I was doing was actually transforming organizations. And so um, through acquisitions and uh, through building new departments and doing things. So as I worked, I was in the B2B business yeah. and um, tended to work in corporations. Um, I did some consulting, but those were for corporations as well, all in the software industry. And so I started, uh, that's when I started examining my career. I didn't really examine it much before that. During. I sort of did it. Right. I always had this belief that I was doing this myth. That, I was, that was always in the back of my mind. And I had always believed that I was actually building new things. And it was only once I sort of dug into it uh, back then and realized, actually, I'm changing things and transforming things, not building things specifically because I have to work with so many other people on it. And, um, so no, I mean, I didn't get up in the morning and say, no. Right. I'll, I'll, so the know. introspection is like coming more now. Yes. I have forced, I actually decided yeah. to take a look at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, started to think about it. And you're like learning. Yeah. I'm sort of learning what I was doing that whole time. Frankly, right. it might not have been a bad idea to be more introspective as I went along, but I didn't seem to have time to. Right. Well, you <laughs> had a very it. successful career. It was successful. Yeah. And, and uh, one other, enjoyed it. yeah, you had a very successful career and there's two things I wanted to, um, well, a couple of things I wanted to talk about, but as far as your career goes, um, you, one, did you interview with Steve Jobs? Am I, I did. I did one time. I interviewed with Steve Jobs. He didn't hire me. Yeah. But I was just watching the show, this thing about Steve Jobs and like what a maniac he was. And like, was he a total maniac? It was not a pleasant interview. <laughs> uh, he, he wasn't, you know. <laughs> but you sat there with him. It was for well, next. I had an interview with it him. It was yeah. for next, right? It was for next. And it was to run his services organization. Uh, I believe it was. must have been because that's what I tended to do. Right. And um, yeah, it was not a long uh Time. I obviously knew who he, who he was. I mean, he was famous back then. Really? Well yeah. What year was that? Next. 80s? Oh, 90s? Uh, 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 early, this might have been early 90s, I yeah. guess, maybe. But yeah. Um, that's so funny. I didn't, I didn't get the job. I'm. That's probably just as well. I'm yeah. not sure I would have been a great match <laughs> for him. Yeah. I don't think he was. I totally, I thought I like dreamed that, but then I no. remembered you saying. I later, by the way, later on, I was, I interviewed when I was trying to hire a marketing person uh, at a, another company I worked for, it was corporate marketing it was for the entire company. Uh, it was a big company, $2 billion company. And she um, was the director of marketing reporting into Steve Jobs at Apple. Wow. I'm not sure she was direct report, but she was, she was in the marketing uh, yeah. at Apple under Steve Jobs. And she just, I mean, she was just traumatized. She was traumatized. <laughs> she was, she just said, He's the worst guy to work for in wow. marketing. I mean, he's probably the best marketing guy who ever, ever lived existed. on the planet. Yeah. And how would you like to try to be work in marketing with him? So. Yeah, I know. Crazy. But, well, I was bringing that up because you, to get to the point of you were heavily involved in Silicon Valley, you graduated with your master's from Stanford. You were like there in the oh, 80s yeah, yeah, and we 90s. Were, yeah, we were we Yeah, were there. you were yeah. where things were happening and um, at PeopleSoft and all of that. And then you made a really big decision. Um, which was not, I don't think, motivated by fame, money, power, success, all of these things that drive, I would say, most of us, right. whether we want to admit it or not. And that was to leave this huge company in Silicon Valley and move to New Zealand. 
yes. with your entire family. Yes. Um, what was happening at that time and what did motivate that? I've heard this story, but I think for millennials sort of killing themselves in these jobs right now and or super bored in their jobs right now, I feel like that was a pretty risky thing to do. Yeah, there was uh, some uh, risk in it. I had been just been uh, a uh, senior executive at a big company, and so I had been making pretty good money yes. for the previous four years. And so I had a little bit of a cushion to fall back on if this didn't work out. And so that, of course, made it much, uh, you know, made it a little bit easier without getting into all the uh, nitty gritty details yeah. of we wanted to uh, get away from Silicon Valley. Mm. And there were things that were not working for us uh, there er, in Silicon Valley, shall we say. So it, it and we wanted to try something new. So it, it wasn't it wasn't all just sort of running away from one place. Right. We also wanted to try something I new because we've been there 28 years. Yeah. I have a friend right now who I'm thinking of that prompted this question, and mm -hmm. he will be coming on this podcast when he's legally able to. And he's leaving a huge uh -huh. corporation in New York, and people are just looking at him like he is nuts to leave. And I think, I mean, he's making so much money yeah, yeah, and he's just, yeah. he's ultimately really unhappy with the integrity. And there's just so much going on within the company and with his personal life as well that he like needs to leave. Yeah, sometimes but I think it's really hard to do, especially with a family and to move across oh, the world yeah. and you did it. And I just think that's like totally like, what would your, I guess, advice be for somebody who you know, it feels like they're sort of stuck in this job or they, you well, know, for well, money or, or whatever. And like, because you did it. I guess I would say don't do a job where you're miserable. Uh, I have, I've always had this concept of, and I always, when I interview someone, I always say, what do you do easily and well? Hmm. And I just stop right there and, and listen. Because what you do easily and well is what you should be doing. And any job has a certain amount of drudgery, but your job needs to have at least 50% or so, so where it's creative and you feel you're in the flow. You're the subject, not the object, right? And um, where you're in control and it's, it's yours. And for, for you, you know what you do easily and well. You just described it. You do direct things. Okay, yeah. that's what you do <laughs> easily and well. what to do. <laughs> um, for me, transforming organizations, I do it easily and well. It's just one of those things I know how to do. I know how to work with the people, and I know how to do it. I know how to do the analysis on it. I do analysis quite easily and well. I'm good with spreadsheets and that. When I'm doing that, I'm in the groove. Mm -hmm. I am in the groove. It, nothing. I don't hear anything on the outside, nothing else. I never, I'm not tempted to get up and get another cup of coffee. I'm just, I'm in the groove. And if your job is not a job where you're in the groove, a good part of the time, it doesn't have to, it's not going to be 100%. But 50% of the time, it's, you got to be in the groove. And, um, and that, means, that means it's natural for, to you. And if you do that, just don't worry about the money. The money will come. Yeah. You'll, you'll make enough. You'll be okay uh, because you can't force it. And I guess in a way, that's what's happened to me. But when you get in a job, sometimes it starts um, and you're doing things that you do easily and well. And it's, it's really cool and you love doing it and you're in the groove. 
but the, but things change. New people come in, new bosses come in, new employees come in. The business changes, new products come on board. Uh, the economy changes, whatever it might be. And every, and so you're no longer doing something you do easily and well, and you found yourself stuck over here mm. doing something. I don't even like this, you're thinking. But then I'm making all this money. and But right. you're not, you're, if, it, if it's not something where you enjoy it and you wake up uh, excited about it pretty much most days, then you've just got to take the the leap and um, and leave, and it always, always, always works out for the best. And um, had this recently, you know, when you've been a manager in companies as long as I have and managed as many people, you end up laying off and you've you end up firing a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, over time. You just do, yeah. Um, and they're always good people. Yeah, they're always good people. If they just are in the wrong place. <laughs> Or the place changed. They were in the right place, and now it's the wrong place. Yeah. And they don't realize it, but you do, and it's not working. It's like you're doing them a favor almost, sort it, of. They don't think that way. Yeah. But, they, but it is never – and by the way, I've been fired. Yeah. I've been fired several times for exactly that same reason. It's, it's been three – at least I've been fired at least three or four times or laid off might be – whatever the euphemism is. Sure. And um, it is always the best thing. And um, because you get out of this thing that wasn't working for you, uh, if it's not working, for, you, you just know it's not working for you. And a few days later, Something. yeah, you're miserable for a few yeah. days. Then you start looking and you realize what you're looking for and you find the job you're looking for. Never had it happen where getting fired wasn't the best thing that ever happened to me. You are so Clay's father. I'm like listening to you. We just think so differently. He must get that from you. He has the everything's always going to work out mentality. He doesn't live in fear or anxiety or worry. And just listening to you talk, it's such a um, refreshing way of thinking for me. And I get that from Clay. And so many times like – I'm just realizing this listening to you with we'll be asking your advice or, um, you know, you've said things like, you know, it, it, it will work out or whatever is meant to happen is meant to mm-hmm. happen or don't worry about the money so much or just yeah. things like that. Um, you've given him some really good advice and it's just funny listening to you. And I think that it's important to remember, especially if you are listening and are tend to be more like controlling and mm-hmm. driven by anxiety and fears and all of these things that it does work out. Like it really does. And I'm shown that time and time again. And it worked out really great for you guys in New Zealand. That's where Clay basically grew up. And um, that's how you got into DB Visit, which you spent Mm -hmm. how many years? It's been uh, nine and a half years. Nine and a half years. And that's where you were. Yeah, that was related to the the New Zealand uh, move. And it's been, it's just been great. I've made some great friends there. And it's, uh, but things do work out if you just sort of follow the flow of going you know, doing the things that come easily and well. Yeah. I mean, it's the best advice. It really is. I know which soundbite I'm going to use now for this. (laughs) I mean, it's really good advice. And I think that we, I specifically really like to complicate things. And like, just going back to that advice you said, when I was like trying to get on the phone with this person to hire, you're like, it's probably what it's going to be like. (laughs) It's like so obvious, you know, and we try and just overcomplicate everything. And So going back to, I just have a couple more questions. Um, Going back to, I mean, you worked with a lot of people over the last 40 years. You worked with a lot of really successful people. Oh, yeah. And one question I had is, and I thought of this today, is there something, I mean, I'm 
early on in my career, I have like hopefully, you know, a very long career ahead of me and as does Clay. And is there sort of a common theme, no matter what sort of industry or level somebody was at throughout your experience in business around successful people? Like, is there a common theme or a common characteristic that made somebody inspiring to you that made you look up to them where they were also very successful? Um, is there something that all of these people had in common that you started to sort of recognize across the board in somebody that was just in the flow or like really in their group? Thinking off the top of my head on that, you start thinking about managers you've had. Mm-hmm. So when you work in corporations, you have you have managers. And in my case, it was almost always the CEO that tended to be the the uh, the role I, I, I played. And I think... If the manager was older, which they um, used to always be, right? Uh, if they were, if they took an interest in my career, and they really, and they, they, they noticed it, they, they knew that the decisions uh, would affect my career and what I did. I just really respected that hmm. because they would, they, you just knew some of the things they were giving you advice on were related to improving your career. Um, yes, it would probably help the company as well, but they they were concerned about your career. So they were like invested in their people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great way of putting it. And I've tried to do that. Yeah. Uh, as I particularly as I got older, I, I used to be probably a pretty hard nosed jerk in some ways. I can't um, see that. Well, I might. I might have I been. Don't know there might that. be some people who dis- disagree <laughs> with that, uh, but might be some people who would agree with me on that um, because I was pretty striving and um, well, you just tend to be um, when right. you when you when you're younger, I guess, and just getting going. I but mean, later, I, feel ba- I feel bad for some of the people who have to answer to me. Too. <laughs> it's probably but, but, a nightmare. You know, it, it's, but what you want to do is 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 consider their career and consider how um, you know they're making their way through the world, and they're going to do hopefully what comes easily and well to them. And right. it's, it's if it's what you need, then you just go with that and don't force them into something. Um, for uh, managers I've had who were more. Um, peers or um, even younger, if you work for the, some of these CEOs in these big companies, how decisive uh, these men and women women are. I, the CEO of my first company uh, was, uh, was Sandy Kurtzik, and she was obviously a woman, and, and she's one of the pioneers in Silicon Valley. And um, That's she, cool. Yeah, she, she was not so much on that career side. She was not much older than I was. She was a little bit older. But boy, was she a decisive person, and she was a good. She was a good person. She definitely cared about her people, um, and but she she would. She could make the. Decision. She could she could make decisions, and she could just see right through thing bullshit. Yeah. Just and, and most good managers just see through the bullshit. They're not jerks about it, but they just say, "Come on, come on, we tried that before. It didn't work. Right. Come on, right. and uh, just sort of work through." And I had a lot of respect for her and for the, and for other managers I've had who just, you know, you go in they with the bullshit. With they just yeah. don't put up with it. So or, it's this fine line of investing in your people, but not putting up with the bullshit. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> that's the well, balance. Saying, you know, just getting to the point. Yeah. You know, what that's are we trying the to line do here? we're trying yeah. to walk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know you're trying to do that and I know you want blah, 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 yeah. but you know, come on, we're not getting there. And, um, I've also tried to, that's not necessarily my style, but I've also tried to pick up that style a bit 
when it, when you just hear somebody making yeah. excuses. You're definitely more subtle, I would yeah. say. I've actually never heard you say anything negative about anyone. Yeah, and, it, and also a good a good manager can make a lot of progress with humor. Yeah. Um, you know, just humor. Yeah. Where you both sort of I know. Get it. I do take myself a little too seriously. And I think, you know, I don't think business has changed all that much. I no. think I think no. humans are humans and we're definitely evolving and yeah. and are I think more aware maybe than we were 40 years ago. But at the end of the day, I think the way we behave is the way we behave. And so there's a lot to be learned from somebody who's been in business for 40 years versus somebody who's just starting out. And I think that's really good advice. And my actual next question was if you had like one piece of advice for millennials, whether it's like entrepreneurial, like I am, or somebody that's in corporate, which was more the way you were, well, you were kind of both because you were a consultant. So you weren't like, cause you did the Lone Ranger thing. So you weren't necessarily. Yeah. No, I was often not an employee of the company. I was a little bit on the outside. So you you were a little bit oh, definitely. of both. And yeah. even when I was in a company, I sort of prided myself on typically being a little bit on the outside. Yeah. I wasn't on the mainstream. I was starting new countries or right. or new divisions um, or totally new services. So I was always prided myself being a little bit on the outside looking in, a little bit of an expat, if you will, yes. to companies. So a, a, a bit of that. But it was always with corporations, which is a bit different than an entrepreneur. Yeah. It's a little um, bit of both. I think I definitely think there was an entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah, there's some of that, but I, 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 for you I needed to- other people. I, I, I was not one of these guys to literally take a blank piece of paper and build a business. For right. Me. I mean, I wouldn't say that I, I am either. I take other people's ideas well, and make them does, money, but to a certain extent. <laughs> anyway, my question is, um, for millennials, I have a lot of people on my part that listen to this, that are young artists, creatives, business owners, have a dream, have a vision, something like that. And after sort of seeing the trajectory of how business works and how things ebb and flow, do you have sort of like a main piece of advice that you would give somebody early on in their career, regardless of what specifically it is, or do you think it needs to be more specific? Well, I think I'll take two cases for the entrepreneurs. And I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs. I would say, um, be very, pay, pay close attention to the difference between the core of your business and the context of your business. The core of your business is what makes you unique. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a software company, it's your software product. For instance, if you're a, a, a consultant, it's your service product. Or if you're a yoga instructor, it's yoga. Yeah. Um, that's the content. That's the core. That's the core. That's the core of your business. And you want to focus on the core. Okay. Now, every business has context. Uh, this, the terminology I'm using here is Jeffrey Moore's. Okay. Uh, who's a pundit in Silicon Valley. But there's probably other terms for it. But the context of your business is the invoicing and the purchase orders and the, right. the, the uh, human resources and everything around, all the administrative stuff. You have paying the taxes and the accounting and mm-hmm. all that. All very important. All very important. Crucial to the business. But it's not your core. So keep your eye on the core and the context you can hire out to other people. You can subcontract to other people. Um, and don't worry about the context. Keep the cost of your context as low as possible. Keep it as efficient as possible, as automated as possible, and stay focused on the core. Because most companies, as they grow, they get uh, the entrepreneur tries to do too much of the context when they probably are the core. 
That's literally exactly what we're and experiencing right yeah, now. Yeah, well, yeah. And you don't, you know, just, you can hire people to do that. Junior people can totally. do it. Yeah. Uh, subcontract, get somebody else to do the payroll, get somebody else to do the accounting. So don't do anything, somebody else to do the taxes and all that. And just keep focus on what makes you unique. Because if you're not unique, you can't cause a price differential to cover your uniqueness, in which case you're a commodity, in which case you're not going to be successful. Right. That's so that's for, such good advice. For an entrepreneur, because yes. you see that all the time. Oh, very, yeah. very tricky. Um, it's sort of obvious, but it's the core. Well, I get so caught up in the... I get so caught up in the, what you're calling context of it. Like I was we on a do. two hour call we today and finally we our strategist goes, you know what? Cause I'm hiring those people. I'm doing the right thing. I am hiring them, okay. but I am totally mm-hmm. bogged down in how to train them and what they should be doing. And finally today, my strategist was like, mm-hmm. hire him tomorrow and put him on a call with me and I will train him. Cause she's like, this is not what you should be focusing right, on, right. but it still is important. It's still important. And you might even be quite good at it. I'm not. But even if you are good at it, yeah. because some of Clay is. For instance, well, and that might be good. He might be your context guy, but there might be people who are good at core and context. They're just very uh, renaissance right. people who can do anything. But you really got to still focus But still, on. forget it. You yeah. may be, there's an old, uh, this is so old, but I'll tell the story. You can cut it out later, but <laughs> it's, it's Herbert Hoover back as a president was yeah. a very fast typist. Okay. He was the fastest typist. But he was president of the United States. Right. He could not find anybody who could type as fast as he could. So should he have been doing his own typing? Of course not. You know, even though he was the very best typist. Right. And you, and you run right. into that with entrepreneurs. They go, totally. well, I'm the very best at doing this. I say this that deck. all the time. I'm the best at this. And it's like, well, that's okay. Hire two junior people right. and let them take 10 times as long and don't, you know, focus on what makes, differentiates your company. So that's the entrepreneur side. Yeah. I think uh, in the corporate side, stick with what comes easily and well to you. Don't force yourself into things. Um, And if somebody wants to promote you into something that you don't do easily and well, uh, you want to get the promotion because you want the respect and the money and, and all that refashion the job to so it continues on mm. with what you do easily and well don't just take the job that somebody else had if, if you you can't say look i want that job but i only want this part of the job because i'm no good at that part of the job but once you give that part over to uh right. phil or sally or whoever it right. is because they're really good at that stuff yeah i mean it's great advice i think you should be a mentor you thought about doing that? I did a little mentoring in, in New Zealand, actually. I was, they have a mentor society or something. I was yeah. a member of that. I mean, I just feel like we should be paying you for this. That's like oh, life-changing no. information here. <laughs> um, thank you. So the last question I have to sort of wrap up here is the same thing I ask every guest. So I okay. did prep you for this. Yes, um, you did. And we'll start with the inauthentic. And I always think this uh. is the most interesting because – we're not perfect people and we make decisions no out of ego and out of fear Egos and, no, you know, those are all kinds of things. And, um, those are the things I end up learning the most from. So oh. do you have an example or a time or even an employee's decision or some sort of inauthentic where oh, it wasn't the flow? <laughs> oh my God. I, I do. I was, uh, it's, um, uh, 
I've never forgotten it. And um, it was my worst. It was probably the worst thing I ever did in a way. This was back in the er very early 90s. I just left this company I'd been for 13 years and I was doing a consulting project on the product that I had helped build. So I was an expert at this product. I mean, nobody knew this product better than I did. Nobody on earth actually knew the product probably better than I did. And I was consulting for a company that was one of our customers, one of our when I'd been in the company, they were a customer mm-hmm. and they were positioning, uh, they, I won't, don't need to use the name of the company, but no. they were positioning to go public Okay, and they were a high, high tech manufacturer. And I was, uh, brought in to take a look at how they were using the, the product because they weren't getting the efficiencies and they weren't getting the throughput and the delivery times that they needed, which is pretty crucial if you're delivering hardware. You got to get the product out the door, and sure. it's—I mean, this is important stuff because it's material requirements planning, and it's really uh, important. And um, so, I did a little research on it, and I saw that they had implemented it wrong, and they really hadn't implemented it the way it was. It was very—they'd done not a very good job of implementing it. So, we had a meeting uh, with the uh, CEO of the company and the IT guy and all the senior management, including the production manager. Uh, who's responsible for all this. And he's the one in the hot seat for this company going public. I mean, there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And God, I, was, <laughs> I just, I, I, my ego got in the way. For some reason, I wanted them to think I was really great. Uh-huh. And it's like, I was a consultant. They don't need to think I'm great. I didn't realize right. what I needed to do was make, make the other people seem really great. I didn't get it. I, I want to make them heroes, not me a hero. I'm supposed to be the Lone Ranger. I'm not supposed to care about this stuff. What am I doing? But anyway, I didn't know that at the time. I sat down the meeting. Oh, Mr. Hotshot knew more about this product than anybody on earth. Which you did. Which I happened to. For the to, record, yeah. And I made sure everybody damn knew that mm-hmm. and um, said, well, look, you've just put in the data incorrectly. You've implemented this improperly. And uh, this is not how the product was designed. And so we're going to have to go back and, and redo how, you, how you've done this. And I just said it in kind of a snide, really. Sure. I was just, it was awful. Um, and after the meeting, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And I go <laughs> in the next day to set up a meeting with the production manager, who all of a sudden didn't want to spend any time with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he did, he had to spend time with me because I'd been working for the CEO and he was monosyllabic. Yeah. And he was obviously really irritated with me. And uh, I just didn't get anything out of him. And I went back to the IT guy who I'd been working with. And I said, I think I did. I, I think maybe I did something wrong in the meeting yesterday. And he turned to me and he said, you sure did. And just gave me a real earful. I never got that guy back. I never got uh, his trust back. I, wow. I worked so hard to get his trust back. I, I, I worked with his people. I just, I never got his trust back. He never trusted me again. He never liked me. And I was, that was inauthentic. Yeah. And it was just, well, it, it was just not seems me. so unlike you. Yeah, oh, it exactly. was just awful. I just yeah. don't know what, uh, but I was, it, you know, I was new at consulting. Well, I was old enough to know better. I was probably, well, I mean, I feel like if that's something. like the worst thing you've ever done, you probably, yeah, it was just one of those bad you ones. You left a really good. Yeah. I have some other ones, but that's enough. That no, is, I think that that's, that's well, that's a good learning lesson because I think a lot of people tend to, I do that too. Like if I, and I don't know why I do this, but sometimes when I'm doing deep dives, I charge a lot for them and I'm, 
I try to prove like yeah. my value or something. Yeah. And I've had my close friends be like, stop trying to prove your value. We already like people are paying you. They know yeah, it. Yeah, so they, you just shut up it. and with the ego yeah. and just do the thing yeah. and get in the flow. And you really want other people to feel good. It's yeah. You want to, my ego got in the way of that one yeah. and I've never forgotten it. And I've never, I've been very careful ever Not since. So in it. a way it was probably a good learning yeah. experience. Well, I think like I said, the most, you know, those mistakes lead to the best yeah, learning yeah, lessons. So, so um, my last question is, is if you have like a moment of authenticity, which sometimes can come out of like a really tough decision or um, it's not easy, but you know, you stayed in integrity and you know, you were true to yourself and it was an authentic moment that you, you know, later on were very proud of. I had an authentic, I thought about this because you did alert me to the question and I had a it was. It wasn't a moment at all. It was. A, it was a process, and I was. I was working for a large uh, software company. I was an employee, and I had recently been hired by uh, the company, and I was managing six hundred people organizations. So I was very busy. I just started uh, two weeks before when this company acquired another company, mm. and uh, uh, the company had no experience acquiring companies. Uh, it had a couple disasters, but I knew how to acquire companies because I'd worked at Cisco. And I'd managed acquisitions, and I'd also been acquired by Cisco. So I knew I knew about acquisitions. I felt very comfortable with acquisitions. And so they went around the executive table, and nobody wanted to touch this thing. And I said, you know, I just started, but I know how to do an acquisition. I know how to do this. I'll know how to do this. And I did, and uh, I did know how to do it. And, um, and I worked for the CEO, and I'd worked for that same CEO before, so I was very comfortable with him. And I knew I had complete authority. So here I was doing something easily and well and being the subject, not the object. I knew what I was doing and I was good at it. And I went down there and uh, I know acquisitions are very nerve wracking for, for both companies, but particularly for the company being acquired. And uh, I knew that because I'd been acquired and I, it, it sucks to be acquired, frankly. Right. Uh, really. It's, it's an awful feeling. And a lot of these people were um, on H-1B visas. And if, if mm. they lost their job, they were going back uh, to whatever country they came from. And uh, they were really nervous. And we we had no intention of laying anybody off. That was, matter of fact, that's why we bought the company is to get all these people right. to a certain extent. And for the next month, uh, I, I worked down there every day. I set up an office down there and I, I talked to people from morning to night, just making them feel comfortable, telling them mm. it's going to work and uh, figuring out where they fit in the organization and, you know, organizing things so that everybody's salary was, you know, stayed right. the same. Everybody knew who their manager was. Everybody knew what their job was and how they were going to be measured. And it was just, I was just for a month, uh, two months, however, maybe it was a month, whatever it was. I was just in the flow mm. with that a tremendous pressure. And I, I won't say there weren't some anxious times, but uh, that I was doing something I was really good at. I knew I was good at it and I knew I had the authority to do it. And you spoke up. And I spoke up and I had, and I had chosen it and it was just a magic month in a way. And it worked great. I mean, it was just fantastic. Yeah. The results were nobody left. That's amazing. Uh, nobody left. Everybody came on board. Yeah. That company hit their targets. Uh, our stock price went up uh, when it was, it was just all this 
it was sort of a magic and it was that was it was authentic that was me yeah and i if i could have figured out a way to do that sort of thing for a living i might have kept doing it but right. i couldn't quite figure out how to just yeah. manage acquisitions for a living but yeah uh, oh i love that story well this has been so fun i just think you know we learn i learn a lot from you because well obviously it's funny having a father-in-law because I have a dad, right? And you guys are yeah. quite different. <laughs> quite different, although he's also he's a very successful, very business successful businessman yeah. who he'll get on this podcast. Uh, you got to get him on. Yeah. Oh yeah, I will. <laughs> uh, maybe like a Father's Day weekend podcast or something over a glass of wine. But that will be that podcast will be very different, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> than this. Um, but it's just interesting having getting to have this person in your life that knows a hell of a lot more than you do that's been in business. Um, and I think our society particularly doesn't sort of revere our elders in the way that we should. And I think creating, you know, having these mentors and having these people in our lives is really important. And Deborah, who's a client of mine, talked about this on my podcast because I'm learning so much from her business yeah, and she's in her sixties now. Yeah. And it's like, she did this for 30 years and right. I had Gay Hendricks on the podcast. I'm um, who's been doing this for 40 yeah. years. And yeah. I just think that, um, I learn a lot from these conversations and, uh, I'm just good. grateful. Yeah, We enjoy your podcast. Thank so. you. Yeah. Are you, are you going to listen to this one? Uh, I don't know if I'll need to listen, but I know Mary will. So <laughs> she's my biggest fan. <laughs> she is a very yeah. Fan. I'm very lucky. So anyway, um, I'm just glad we got to have this conversation. Yeah, we you. just moved to Santa Cruz. Yeah, this welcome is, to Santa. Cruz. Thank you. Yeah. It's day two, so we're recording from Santa Cruz, <laughs> and um, my brother-in-law actually had the idea of interviewing you, yeah, Ty. I, I noticed that, and yeah. I'm so happy. Yeah. So I'm, thank you for being here. I'm, Pleased to be here. And I have no calls to action because Mark's retired. So he's also the Lone Ranger. So not on socials and (laughs) (laughs) no call to action. No call to action. So that's the end of the podcast. Okay. Um, Thank you all for being here. Of course, um, I'm so grateful, as you know. And until next time, keep growing.